Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about the Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays in Placentia, California at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Good morning. Here we are. We did it. We did it. How many of you came early? Anybody? Just a few, a few of us forgetting to fall back, even though our clocks do it for us. Hey, we are thrilled that you are here this morning. Welcome to Vox. A couple of things. Number one, if you're walking in right now, hello. 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 The best seats are in the front. The best seats are in the front. We're just going to watch you sit in the back. And um, my name's Mike, and if this is your first time with us, you need to know a website, voxoc.com. Uh, you can find out more about us. The Steelers today. The Steelers today. Oh, man. My Owen eight Browns are playing the Cowboys. So that ought to be. I pay hundreds of dollars to watch my Browns lose in exceedingly creative ways. Um, so thank you for. I get to look at the Cowboy star this whole time and call down. Silently, I'll be calling down the judgment of God on um, the offensive line of the Cowboys. But don't bother with that. Uh, we, uh, we have our last Nudavox dinner of the year coming up this week. So it is, the, it is Wednesday night after the election when we're all saying, hello, President Johnson. And, um, and uh, so we're, we will gather together, and I'm sure half of us will be celebrating and half of us will be mourning. We just don't know which half. And, um, and uh, you can find out more about us. Go online, voxoc.com, to sign up for that. Now, one of the questions we get every now and again is, is um, we started this community out of a podcast, and, which is a, a kind of a weird thing to do. And, uh, and so one of the questions we get every now and then is, well, why, don't, why do you do a church out of a podcast? Why, why not just do the podcast and kind of let people do whatever they're going to do, wherever they're going to do it? And so what, I want to spend maybe three minutes answering that question before we get into our story. We kind of arrange these times around five big um, core pillars. So go ahead and put that up. So, um, so we do these in various orders. Um, so we sing, and not because churches do that, but because um, we believe that, that music is formative and not just expressive. There's some songs that express how we're feeling, um, and, and by the way, we always know that there are non-Jesus followers in the room and non-church people in the room, and so we try to be very sensitive to that. And we also know there are loads of fans of Jesus, and so, so we're unashamedly focused on this Jesus, but we are aware that not everyone's on board. And so even in the songs we pick and the way that we do them, we're trying to make a great deal of permission to people to kind of be as they are. You're never going to hear huge, hypey, big band anthem songs Loads of churches do that. Hallelujah, we love them. We're very low-key and laid back. And the reason is that we're just not into hype. We don't, we don't want you out here leaving with an emotional buzz that, buzz that just fades. We want something a bit more substantial. And so some of the songs are emotive for sure, but we really believe that singing is formative for God's people. And they've, they've, God's people have been singing their prayers for generations, and so that's what we do. These are prayer songs. These are not just... Hey, we got to fill time, guys. Lord knows I can fill time. I fill lots of things. I fill seats. I fill time. So, so uh, we sing. 
Secondly, um, we're big fans of the scriptures. And, and whether or not you believe the, the Bible is the inspired word of God, we just think there's so much wisdom there. Uh, and what we do specifically is we look at the beauty and majesty of Jesus. So we're not going to get into all the crazy, like, debatable doctrinal stuff. We just fo- focus on how beautiful Jesus is. Tons of great teaching on the Internet, so you can always find more. The problem isn't the church needing more teaching. The problem is the church obeying the clear teaching of Jesus, right, that it already knows. Right? So love your enemies. Let's start that before we debate predestination. All right? Because it, it's way easier to debate predestination than it is to love your enemies. So let's just love our enemies, uh, and we'll start there, right? So, so we just believe being recaptured by the, the majesty and the beauty of Jesus is central to why we gather here. We, don't, we, we cover that a bit on the podcast, but this is the central focus of our time together. Third thing we do is tell stories. And the reason we tell stories and the kind of stories we tell, we want raw stories, honest stories. We don't want pretending stories, and we don't want stories that always end in pretty red bows. Some of them do, but we're particular fans of stories in the midst of brokenness, uh, in the midst of struggle. People who are coming and saying, listen, I'm in the middle of a huge battle with mental illness. I'm not sure how this thing's going to go. I'm kind of hanging on uh, barely by the, just the tips of my fingers. I mean, we just think the church should be a place where you do not have to pretend. And we just see lots of pretending. And, and we just want to be a community where you don't have to. Now, that doesn't mean God just loves your brokenness and is just going to let you stay there. It does mean, however, that we just want to give loads of permission for people to be in process, right? And very often in Christian circles, um, that's exactly what we don't give each other, is permission to be in process. You gotta, it's an all or nothing thing, and it's not, as we'll talk about later today. Sacrament, now that's a big old fancy word that just means an observance or a rite, R-I-T-E. We, we practice uh, the Eucharist. Um, some would say giving is a sacrament. Some would say um, singing is a sacrament. We're, we're, we avoid all of those things. What we mean by sacrament is that you have work to do here. Your role isn't just to passively observe. If you're a fan of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to participate. So come to the table, take the bread and the cup. Uh, pray, sing, ask for prayer. Learn generosity. I mean, whatever it is, we invite you to participate in the middle of it. That's what sacrament is. It's the work of the people together in observance to, to, the, um, to the reality of Jesus in our midst. And so that's the table, and that's a lot of other things we do. And then lastly, and this is one we don't talk about much, we believe that God is real and God is active, and that God is everywhere always, and that God sometimes uniquely reveals himself when his people are together. So you didn't choose the people that are in this room. This is a great reminder. See, when you're, when you're in a room by yourself on a podcast and you pick the podcast or the topic, or when you're just with your friends and the people who are like you, okay, that's great and that's needed, no question about it, but that's not the new humanity that Jesus came to create. The new humanity is when people who get together who have nothing else in common other than humanity uh, and Jesus of Nazareth. And so we just think there's power here and an expectancy here when God's people gather. See, I don't show up because this is my job. I show up because I need a family to share a table with every Sunday. Because my life in this world is nuts. It's nuts. I just cannot even stand it. And so I just need to be reminded there are some things that are steadfast. 
you guys are going to sit in that corner, right? Normally right there. You guys love those seats. I mean, you just are claiming in the new room, there are seats that are being claimed. And I love seeing you and I love sharing the table with brothers and sisters uh, who I don't pick, who don't look like me, think like me, talk like me, act like me. I just think, I think if you're a fan of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, bring expectancy here. We just want to be willing to be surprised. Even though kind of we do things a, a bit differently, we just think there's something about this that can't be captured on a podcast. Make sense? So that's why we gather. That's why we do this. I want to introduce you to Reuben. Reuben is uh, willing to share his story. Reuben, so this is what not to do. All right, so Reuben, Reuben, come on out. This, that's your cue. So Reuben, <laughs> we're at a Nudavox dinner, and, and Reuben, as you'll hear, Shortly, Reuben's like, you know, your stories are great, but they're from people that, you know, like, were Christians from a young age. When are you going to get a real story about somebody who didn't come to Jesus, like, until later? And he's like, well, that's me. And I was like, okay. Thank you for opening your mouth, Reuben. Here you go. What Sunday are you going to share? So, this is Reuben. Say hello. Service was held here, um, but unlike most of the stories I've heard here, clearly, I was not a believer in God most of my life, and uh, actually, the very thought of it sounded sort of ludicrous to me. So, you know, <laughs> yet I, here you are. How did I get here, right? So, I was raised in a typical immigrant Mexican home, um, except not Catholic or not religious, and uh, family was most important. And the means of gathering the family was parties, right? So partying was ultimate. We were always partying with the family. And as I grew, um, I continued that lifestyle only with a greater level of zeal. Um, I was a reckless young man. In fact, there's several reasons, was, several reasons why I shouldn't be here today, mm. probably, mm. Um, except for the very fact that God is good and perhaps there's someone in here that needs to hear this story. That's right. So my journey of meeting God begins with the day I met my wife at work. Um, although at the time she wasn't my wife, I thought she was going to be my next conquest. And um, <laughs> she was, uh, I learned she was promised to another person. She was seeing someone else, and um, I thought she was studying. So I became her friend, and uh, I would tell her about my crazy adventures. And I think she grew to like me over time because I was kind of free and crazy. And um, anyways, soon after that, we uh, started dating. And um, we got kind of serious. And once we got serious, uh, her mother invited her to a church retreat, weekend retreat, women's retreat. And uh, so I was like, okay. She goes to the retreat, comes back, says, we need to talk. Oh. <laughs> so uh, I said, okay, what's up? We know... We know what's coming. We so know. She breaks it down. Oh. I've been a Christian my whole life. And um, we're getting serious, and there's certain things we shouldn't be doing. And I had this timeout moment and said, well, this is news to me. Um, you know, I didn't sign up for this. And essentially, I told her, there's no backwards, only forward, or we part ways. And unfortunately, she caved. Um, so we married. 
after our first child was born, she uh, started to really lean into God, and her church traditions kind of took over. She would uh, go to church on Sundays and Bible studies on Wednesdays and indoctrinated our kids to church and all that. And I, meanwhile, didn't. And I kept my lifestyle going. I'd still hang out with friends, party, you know, do reckless things. Um, I, was, I, was, I was a pretty bad guy. I actually uh, persecuted people of faith. Uh, in a very bad way, including my wife, poor mm. thing. I put her through hell. And um, I actually uh, thought myself better because I didn't need a God. And I thought people that needed God were uh, weak-minded. And my friends even had nicknames for me. They would call me, uh, I don't know if they're Star Wars fans in here, but uh, my favorite one was the Emperor or Dark Sith, <laughs> um, that sort of stuff. <laughs> I mean, think about it. To be a follower of Christ, you got to believe in some pretty wild stories in that Bible, right? It's true. I mean, crazy stuff. Crazy. Like, come on, really? Crazy. And um, from my perspective, I heard these stories because I would go to church occasionally with my wife to kind of keep her happy. So you'd hear these stories. I'd be like, what? And then she would share with me a little bit, trying to, you know, help me out. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it just didn't work for me, and, um, you know, then also I had the opinion, like, you sure, you're a Christian dude? Sure, dude. Okay. Um, so that was me, and as time progressed in our marriage, she got deeper with God, and that drove us further apart because I didn't, and the more she represented God, the less I wanted part of it, Yeah. and um, I would still do crazy stuff and, you know, anything to fulfill my passions, and... That caused fights and lots of tension. In retrospect, I think the closer she got to God, the further it drew us away. And um, it's almost like if I lost my partner in crime to Jesus. And um, so anyway, it's created a lot of tension. And I realized that the closest in our marriage was fading, and I could kind of see the end was near. And so I started to kind of panic. And, uh, but it didn't stop what I would do. One night, soon after that, I had another crazy night and I was waiting for the next morning for the big argument and it didn't come. We had to talk and she genuinely seemed concerned for once and she wasn't um, yelling at me and she was just in anguish. So I, um, I uh, made me want to feel like a better, to be a better man for her. And uh, I saw that she loved me that day, like this wasn't about me or her. So hmm. went to church the next day, listened for once. <laughs> and I heard, uh, you know, if you want to get close to God, you got to read the Bible and pray and, and listen. And so I thought, okay, I could do that, right? What do I have to lose? If anything, I'll prove it's all BS. <laughs> so uh, I started to, uh, the next morning I, I came and asked my wife, hey, if I was going to read the Bible, uh, where should I start? After she collected herself from choking on her breakfast, she said, uh, start reading Psalms. And so I started to read. And I started to pray. And um, I got to say, my first prayer was pretty awkward, to say the least. Um, it, was, it was like... Uh, it Dear went, God, I don't believe it. It went something like this. God, if you're out there, I don't know how to do this. I feel like a crazy person doing this, talking to nobody. But... If you are, you need to show me this is real. That was kind of how it went for several weeks. Love it. 
And one night on a New Year's Eve, my uh, wife's, um, you know, yeah, you have any resolutions? And I said no, and then she started telling me hers, and I, um, I kind of zoned out when she was saying that, and I sort of had this revelation, I realized that I'd been uh, very unselfish, or very selfish, I should say, most of my life, and that was, um, that was sort of the cause of all the issues that I had in my marriage. And um, I, uh, I remember saying, you know, I don't have resolutions, but I just realized that I've been so self-centered my whole life, and um, hmm. that's caused a lot of problems for us. And so she says, so how's the reading going? I was like, well, you know, I don't know. I still have unbelief. It's just words on paper for me. So um, that very next Sunday, we went to church and uh, heard a sermon on, uh, you won't believe it, but it was uh, selfishness and unbelief. Come on. Crazy, right? Come on. Crazy. But. Total coincidence. Total missed it. I totally missed it. I didn't connect the dots. And on the way home, my wife's like, dude, did you hear that? That was for you. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she says, uh, do you remember what we were talking about the other night? About unbelief and selfishness? That's what he was talking about. And I was like, oh, yeah. And in my mind, I'm like, this is bull. This is not how it works. No way. This is too simple, too easy. This is too coincidental. And I was kind of wrestling with God. Like, is this the way it works? Like, this is weak, dude. Really? I need something more concrete. Like, like this is just too subtle for me to just buy into this whole thing. So um, anyway, uh, the next night, I uh, made this big prayer, kind of angry at mad, kind of miffed at God, like, look, if this is going to work for us, you're going to need to do something more concrete, more real, you know, I'm a little stubborn, um, but if you show me you're real, I promise you I will follow you, that was my prayer, right, don't do that, by the way, I don't know, <laughs> I was wondering if that was you, I didn't want to answer it. Hi, Ruben. Ruben can't answer the phone right now. He's, uh, he's at church. So I would say to you, if you don't really want to hear from God, I don't recommend doing that. Anyway, so I did. And uh, that night I had kind of like, I don't know if it was a dream, but it was a restless night. And, you know, um, everything I, bad I've ever done, mean, evil, things I said, things I'd done, started flashing in my head all night, just playing out. And um, I didn't sleep all night. It was just, it was horrible. And I hear people explain like, hey, my, your, your life flashes before you, before you die kind of a thing, or a near-death experience. That's kind of what was happening to me. Mm. In the morning, wake up, my daughter comes out of her room. I think God used her to connect the dots for me because she comes out, tells uh, mom, hey, mom, uh, the devil was in the room last night and he was shaking my bed. Right? Her older sister was in there as a witness, and you know, my, mom, my, my wife's like, uh, you had a bad dream. Well, I was in a room overhearing this, adding the night I just had, reading what I've been reading, and um, I froze in terror. I, I had, uh, had a freak-out moment, like, oh my God, it's real. Like, one of those things happened, and I don't know if it was a dream for her or not, or if all this was real or not, but it was real for me. And I came out and I told my wife, you need to pray for her. And um, it, was, uh, it was quite a moment for me. And I know some of you are out there looking at me saying, yeah, right. And now it kind of sounds crazy. Uh, but I got to tell you, that book, 
The Bible right there, it's no ordinary book. And um, I'd bet you if you give it a try with an open mind, open heart, and um, some time, that uh, some pretty weird things will happen to you too. <laughs> it's like magic. I know my time's coming up. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> yep, I see that. you. Okay. See that minus? Yep, I see it. So, real quick, let me finish up real quick. So, my friends and my family soon after noticed that I was different. Right? Hmm. And um, they, were, uh, they were sort of badgering me, like, what, what happened? You know, Because I heard many times from them that I was like the worst one of the group. Hmm. And so, um, so I invited them to hang out more like we used to, except my house, sometimes their house. And then it grew to friends of friends. And um, I allowed them to question me and challenge me and challenge the Bible. And so long as I could share a little bit with them. And really all I wanted them to know that it was real for me. And that didn't mean we couldn't be friends anymore. We could still hang out, be cool. Um, and I actually did see some come to Christ. Um, wasn't easy. It wasn't fast. For some, it took two years. And for some, it took me meeting with them one-on-one. I went with this one guy for six months at 5 a.m. once a week uh, just so he could process what he was reading. He was willing to read. He was willing to give it some time. I thought I could, I could do this since... My wife suffered for 10 years with me before, you know, I could do it. I mean, Jesus says, right, to follow me, you got to lay down your life. And she laid down her life, right? She, she did that for 10 years. I mean, she deserves like a heavy crown when she gets to heaven or something. Because I wouldn't have been able to do that. I, I think I would have left me. But <laughs> even now as a follower. But anyway, so, um, so I just got to tell you that the, the guys that, uh, that did come over, it was, it was so wonderful to see that, and you get to see the lights come on and, and God and all that. So anyways, back to Vox. So we moved out here a few years ago, and we started visiting churches in the area and trying to find a new home close to home, and um, they were all sort of kind of inwardly focused, and I felt like uh, coming from where I came from when I sat in the audience, like it wasn't designed for me. It was designed for people that were in the club. It had sort of this us them subculture thing mm. until we found this place, and, and then, uh, and then where it's safe to belong. That's right. Where it's safe. Except to belong. when you run over time. So well yes. done. <laughs> okay, love you. That was awesome. You killed it, dude. That's right. Hey, I don't know if you know this. We have an election coming up. Does anyone, anyone been paying attention? It seems, like, it seems like a big deal. Why don't we do a little praying around that, shall we? Um, so I'm going to give you just a few moments of quiet to pray. And um, I would encourage you not to use this time to, uh, to vote um, or to call down imprecations you know, against another candidate. I would encourage, if you're a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to use this time to pray that the church would reflect his beauty. And would put their trust not in a winner and a loser or in a political process. And that we, and that we, we would repent of the ways that we've been very ugly. Um, this has been ugly. And uh, they, they, the world will need peacemakers regardless of who wins. And that's our role description. So this is more about us as followers more about the church as a reflection of Jesus, regardless of outcome, all right? So let's spend just a few moments of quiet. Let's pray.
If you're not a prayer, just keep your eyes open. Look up here. I'll look back at you. I'll pray for you silently. All right, but let's, uh, let's pray and then I'll close this, all right? Father, the last several months have exposed the deep, deep fissures in American society. The amount of hatred and animosity and disdain, the, the amount of anger, the amount of malice, um, even in the church, uh, that all of this has brought up, has just revealed the fault lines and the idolatries that run through all of us. And my prayer, Father, is that the people of Jesus, the people just sitting in this room, me, would the day after the election represent you in a way that brings peace and, uh, and, and would commit to being peacemakers out of this craziness, that there would be a felt difference among Jesus' people and about how we conduct ourselves in the world, regardless of whether or not the candidate we wanted wins or loses. And Father, we do pray for the wisdom of our leaders. You command us to pray, and so in obedience, we pray for them. We pray for their protection. We pray for their blessing. We pray that you would pour out wisdom for a just and flourishing society. And we pray, God, that we might be people who represent you well. And so to that end, we sing now to be formed into those kinds of people. We thank you for Reuben and the way that you surprise us. And so we open ourselves up to being surprised yet again this morning. Amen? Amen. My daughter, and she it was so sweet because she said, she, said um, she was dedicating that song about me. Um, good, good father. You're perfect in all of your ways. And... Um, Particularly that part, she said. So I was up there thinking about you, is what she said. <laughs> no, she said no. She came running back out. She's like, no. I thought I'd give it a shot. <laughs> All right. Um, we've done something foolish. And you're saying, is that new? We open the doors to allow you to ask questions. And your questions are taking over the service. So we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, like, instead of teaching from the Bible today, we're gonna answer, like, questions, because there are so many, and they are so good. And uh, none of these can, can do justice. So this, this is vaguely related to what we talked about last week, because some of the questions are from last week. But we are big fans of questions. We don't think God is threatened. We don't think the church should be intimidated. And so um, we're going to try to get through eight or nine questions that uh, you guys have given to us. And I didn't, I, I, I love, I mean, I'm like, hey, let's just do Bible stuff. Um, and, and the team that I work with was like, no, I think this would be really good. And so um, you guys are amazing. So every now and again, we'll just do a, let's talk about questions time together. And um, because we want to be the kind of community that doesn't need hype to worship or to respond. We, don't, we want to be the kind of community that doesn't need, like, you know, a pep talk. Um, and so sometimes we're just going to sit in a bunch of great questions um, uh, <laughs> written by you and are insanely good. So there's the, there's the uh, don't get cocky with the questions. Don't overwhelm me. Well, it's too late um, already. But um, we, no, I'm, I'm being playful. I would love to hear what you're thinking. So I understand the Ten Commandments 
But I've never understood the place of all the other laws that are in Deuteronomy. And everyone said, yeah, what's Deuteronomy? Um, For example, the direction for marrying female captives seems humiliating and degrading. Or stoning children to death who continue to be rebellious seems utterly harsh and extreme. Or even the virginity test, which we're not going to describe, seems arbitrary and suspect. I mean, I don't remember ble- oh, when I lost my virginity. Okay, so I'm thinking, I'm thinking a guy wrote this. Uh, and um, So why is something like this prescribed by God? It just, see, it just seems the laws were excessive, harsh, I think unrealistic, and weird. Why were they there? Are they really from God? Anyone else have this one? Oh, there's more. What is their place today? How do we understand them in light of Jesus? All right, now, how, how long do you think it would take us to give a good answer to that one? I mean, a couple hours, all right? So here, first of all, I've had all the same questions. The Old Testament, it's just easier to ignore it and say, no, God seems great in the New Testament. He seems weird and angry in the Old Testament. New Testament it is. The problem is you have Jesus walking around saying, I've come to fulfill the Torah, not to abolish it. I've come to show you its true interpretation, not to just set it aside. So we have to at least wrestle with what the heck is happening. A couple of thoughts. Number one. Next slide. Scripture. So here's, one, here's how Paul describes some of these. He says, and this is, a very, this is very specific in context, but there's something, he uses an image here. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Those were all, these are all Jewish practices, right? Come out of the Old Testament. These are a what? A shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. All right, next slide, and uh, and we'll combine these. This is from Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Next. The son, and we've covered this before, is the radiance of God's glory. And this phrase is the key phrase. And the exact representation of his being. Nothing else is called that, okay? Every other revelation we have of what God is like is not called the exact representation of his being except Jesus of Nazareth. So I combine these to do two things. First of all, and this is going to raise more questions than an answer, so bring it. God is a missionary. When humanity rebels, the Bible presents God as a missionary God, meaning he's wooing humanity back. And what he does, like any good missionary, is he speaks in the language of the culture. God's God's revelation is always enculturated. It transcends culture, but it's in culture. So he he spoke a language, Hebrew. Uh, he, He presented himself in forms that Israel would have understood. So Deuteronomy and a lot of the law in Deuteronomy is actually framed around a treaty, a kind of treaty form that kings would use with their subjects. So the promise of life or death, I mean, this was the common way ancient Near Eastern kings would enter into covenants with the people they ruled over. 
The, the Ten Commandments are also framed in the form of a bridal contract. In Exodus, it's God marrying his people. And in, in, in Jewish weddings today, there's something called a ketubah, which we would call the vows. The Ten Commandments are the vows of the people of God in saying yes to marrying their God, Yahweh. So God is always speaking the culture of language, or the, the culture of language, the language of culture, while at the same time, planting the seeds for revolution. In other words, in the New Testament, God didn't abolish slavery. What he did is he planted the seeds for its overthrow. So he spoke through Paul and others. Yes, we would say, of course, slavery is wrong in all forms, all, everywhere, always. It was such a part of the Roman system that had the Christians made, let's get rid of slavery, their cornerstone, that have been extinguished just outright. So in a very wise way, God plants the seeds through his writers to, hey, slaves and masters, treat each other because you're both slaves to Jesus. Treat each other with respect. I mean, revolutionary stuff. Wives, submit to your husbands. Well, that wasn't revolutionary. But husbands, love your wives? That was revolutionary. All right? Even the weird, insane commands regarding female slaves was hundreds of light years ahead of how female slaves were treated. Okay, and now obviously we have no vantage point for that because we're 2,000 years later in a much more egalitarian society. That was patriarchy back then. So, so God, so, and let me give you another example where God does this. He does this with cosmology. All right, the ancients believed the earth rested on four pillars. And there were four corners of the earth. And that the earth, there was water all around the earth and that there were windows that would open every now and again to let rain in. So you can read the Old Testament, and all of these images are used to describe the work of God. Are those true images? Well, yes and no. There aren't really windows, but the point that God brings rain, well, yeah. God always uses the form of his culture. So if, if God were chartering a relation, covenant relationship with Americans, he would use some sort of declaration of independence motif, some sort of constitution. This is what he does, all right? So the, the, the weird things are shadows. They're not the main point, and they're not the full revelation of what God is like. They're God accommodating himself to culture while at the same time planting the seeds for its evolution and revolution as it goes forward. All right, that's my take on this. People would disagree. That's question one. All right, number two. Were Adam and Eve really the first people created by God? When Cain... So this is Adam and Eve's son. When Cain was sentenced to wander the earth, it states, and don't quote the Bible at me. I know what it states. I'm sorry, I'm just being ridiculous. So Cain kills his brother Abel. Cain is worried now that he's going to be sent into exile, and he says, well, whoever finds me will kill me. And the questioner says, well, who's the whoever? I mean, the text tells us there's Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and Abel's dead. Who's going to kill him? Next. And who was Cain's wife? His mother? How great is that? All right. Now, shockingly, there's disagreement over this question. Some people, some people think that Adam and Eve were symbolic. They're archetypes. 
Some people think that Adam and Eve, it doesn't say Adam and Eve were the only people created. Okay? So, and even Adam's name, Adam doesn't really become named Adam. He's named humanity early in the story. So when it says that God creates Adam, it's actually saying God creates humanity, humanity, humanity. So it doesn't say Adam and Eve were the only ones he created. Some think that Adam and Eve were the only ones he placed in the garden as a picture of what he intends humanity to be like, although there were other humans around. Okay, so all kinds of debate on this. The text clearly says there were other people. So it's okay to believe there were other people. Cain goes and builds a city. For who? How does he know what a city is? I mean, listen, the Bible, this part of Genesis is, is, it's battle poetry. It's, um, it's undercutting the cultural narratives of the day. Do I believe Adam and Eve were real people? I do. I think there was an Adam and an Eve, but I also think they were archetypical too. Eve is called the mother of all living. Adam is called humanity. I mean, you get the picture, right? Jesus and Paul seem to refer to them as real people. So, okay. But nowhere does it say they were the only. It can't be because of the things later in the story that are saying, hey, there are all these other people out there, right? So Genesis is giving a very selective account that has an agenda to paint Yahweh and Yahweh's purposes above all the other purposes of all the other gods that were claiming power in that day and age. All right? Again, more questions out of that. But no, there there were more people happening. Unless Adam and Eve, well, I'm not even going to say that. Now, question three. When I hear people say, I want Jesus to come back right now, I get a little upset. I personally don't wish for Jesus to come back yet because there are so many loved ones of mine who don't know Jesus yet. Am I a bad Christian? Oh my goodness. Probably, but not for that reason. All right? Oh, I, I, I don't know. No, of course not. Oh my goodness. There is one reason in the Bible given for why Jesus hasn't returned yet. And you know what that is? So that all people would come to the knowledge of the truth. So you are embodying the heart of the Jesus you're worshiping. All right? So it's okay. And God loves those people more than you do. He's after those people more than you are. And if, any, if there is any heart open to Jesus of Nazareth, he will find them, rescue them, and redeem them. End of story. It's not all new. Hallelujah. Next. Boom! What do you do when God won't answer your prayers? Well, I've, here, here's what I've tried. Manipulate, negotiate, make big promises, pout, threaten. None of those have worked. You know what the Bible's answer is? Keep praying. Be annoying. Jesus tells two parables about people who annoy God into acting. I kid you not. They're in there. And Westerners, see, see Abraham. All right, there's this wacky story. I mean, so many in the Old Testament. Where God says, I'm going to go destroy that city. And Abraham says, whoa, 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 whoa. Why? Come on, you're better than that. Will you spare it if we can find 50 righteous people in there? Sure. How about 40? Sure. How about 30? Sure. 20? Sure. 10? Okay for 10. That is something in Judaism called chutzpah. Okay? 
And, and God loves it. Here's what God doesn't like. Yawn. God loves passion. Even if it's crazy. So, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. All right? Keep bugging him. Because he is answering. It's just not the answer we'd like. And it's never in the timing we'd like. And so I keep pounding the door. And why? Why do you do that? Now, this is a whole different question. Why, why prayer? Doesn't God have it all planned out? No. The scriptures teach that your prayers matter and they work. But there is a sense in God's wisdom, there are times he will delay, he will wait, he will say no, he will redirect. So what do you do when he doesn't answer? You keep praying. And I know that's so hard. If you're a single person and the desire of your heart is for a mate and that's not happening, if you're a married person and you're dying in a marriage and you want God to wake this thing up or you're infertile and you're waiting for a kid, I mean, it's easy to flippantly say keep praying. But at some point, keeping praying hurts. And it's easier just not to. Sometimes I feel so angry with God that I don't know how to go on. Ah, yes. All right, let's talk about praying angry. All right, you've got to learn how to do this. You've got to learn how to pray angry. And what I mean by that is the Bible gives loads of permission to people to be really ticked off at God. And if you don't know how to do that, read some of the Psalms that Reuben was talking about. God, where are you? God, why have you forsaken me? God, why aren't you listening? God, why, why aren't you keeping your promise? God, how have you let this happen? Not one person gets zapped for praying those prayers. In fact, no, they were so good, let's include them in the Bible. There's a whole book called Lamentations where Jeremiah is looking at destroyed Jerusalem and he's just crying out, why did you let this happen? Even though God had clearly said, Israel, it's your, your fault. Jeremiah's going, God, what is, so if you're angry, I think that's a not, I, I was going to say, I think that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I think there's room to shake our fist and say, God, there's a difference between complaining and praying angry, lamenting. Complaining, I mean, you know that, right? It's stubborn, it's hard-hearted, it's, I'm going to find fault. Lamenting, I mean, I've prayed this. When I pray for healing for people, God, it seems like it's in your best interest to do this. Do you realize how many of us are waiting to believe in you? Why don't you do this? I think we got to learn how to pray that way. So for you, maybe you're taking a season off of asking that prayer, the prayer that he's not answering, and maybe you engage now in a season of, God, I'm so hurt by this. I'm so hurt. Do something with this. What should I do? The temptation, and Christians don't always handle this well, shocking. Christians will tell you sometimes, you don't have enough faith, that's why God's not answering your prayer. Or it must be not God's will, and that's so God's already made up his mind, and that's why he's not answering your prayer. The, the best answer I've ever heard in the Bible to why God answers some prayers and not others is the phrase, I don't know. Okay, so just let's all say it together. Are you ready? Ready? One, two, three. I don't know. Hey, so, so how come God hasn't answered my prayer for this? I don't, I don't know. How, how come God didn't heal this person but healed that one? I don't know. Do I not have enough faith? I don't know. I don't know. 
right? All I know is that God embodied in Jesus is the most beautiful picture of God we could ever imagine. And the God embodied in Jesus desires to give good gifts to his kids. That's what I hold on to. And there must be something I'm missing. I also think, and this, man, oh, it's a can of worms alert. The Bible also presents answers to prayer as infinitely complex. Meaning, prayer is a form of spiritual warfare, and there are prayers in the Bible that are opposed. And that there are delays because there's warfare going on around the prayers. Now, if that doesn't jack you up, I got nothing else, all right? Oh, I'm thrilled you'd ask. Oh, all right, next, we got we to gotta start hustling. The biblical accounts of active faith that we did last week seem motivated by personal gain for healing. Okay, not all of them. Remember the woman who anointed Jesus' feet? That was a prayer for healing. That was an overwhelming, interrupting display of faith and gratitude. So they're not all that, but I, I see exactly what you're saying. So do we have an active faith today when we simply approach Jesus, believing he can do something for us or meet a need? In other words, is faith just motivated out of self-interest? Well, a lot of times it starts that way, correct? I have sins, he offers to forgive them. I'm sick, I need healing. I'm in distress, I need comfort. Right, Reuben's critique that very often people of faith turn to God in their weakness, yes, yes. I, no one turned to God in their riches, Right? There is this sense of you got to come to the end of your rope kind of thing. But is that the kind of faith that God wants for his people? Of course not. Consider, consider parenting. If your kids interacted with you only when they wanted something, do they start that way? They do. They do. Do they stay that way? Not if they're healthy and mature. And so part of how God grows us is he takes our self-interest and grows it beyond ourselves to become the act of faith. So for these people that saw Jesus and wanted healing, well, yeah, I, I'd do it too. But as I came to see and understand certain things about Jesus, there was this bigger picture that I went, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. The reward of Jesus really is Jesus. It's not what I get from him. It would seem like, yeah, I'm wondering what does practical active faith look like in our day and age and what are behaviors slash habits that would likely change if we're really following after this Jesus? Boom! Combine this with question number whatever. Next. I'm going to answer that and this one together. Now this was a reference to what we talked about last week. Are you saying that to believe does not necessarily mean to, we need to recognize Jesus as the Son of God, God incarnate, here to save the sins of the world? Because I was beaten up on the idea that biblical faith just means you agree mentally with the right stuff. So the question is, well, okay, if we don't have to agree mentally with the right stuff, how few of the stuff do I have to believe in? Like, if I don't believe in the Trinity, can I still follow Jesus? If I don't believe in the Bible, can I still follow Jesus? If I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, can I still follow him as a moral example? Is it enough just to be intrigued by him to be saved? Oh, to believe he's someone special who can provide healing, physical and spiritual? I'm so confused. You said the opposite of faith isn't doubt. Then what is it? All right, now, the clock says I got three minutes on this. 
Reuben, this is what you did to me. This is Reuben's fault. All right. Are you ready? Okay. Both of these questions. What, 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 what does active faith look like in our practices and habits? And um, how much do we have to agree with before it counts as salvation? Both of these have to be answered in, in a framework other than the way in which they're asked. Okay? Now, stick with me. Look at me. This is going to be like five minutes teaching time. Here we go. I know, it's so exciting. Like, can we move on to another S? Like, we're done with this S, the scripture S. We want more. All right, so there are two ways to see the biblical story, in contractual terms and in covenantal terms. Okay? I want to look at me. This is a big deal. This is a huge deal. Both of these questions are asked out, they seem to be asked out of a contractual framework where faith is a legal agreement between me and God versus a covenant, which is a much deeper, richer, more robust picture of the relationship we're to have with God. Now, let me show you the difference next. Now, go to that. Now, we got to skip the faith and sight one. We'll run out of time. Go to the table if you would. All right, contract. Here's what a contract is. It's the difference between buying a car and getting married. Okay, so let me show you a contract. For the purchase of a 2000 white Ford Expedition with a VCR cassette tape player. Look at that, right? Look at that. This is what a contract looks like. And notice, you, the buyer, may buy the vehicle below for cash or on credit. By signing this contract, you choose to buy the vehicle on credit under the agreements on the front and back of this contract. You pay this, da 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 And all of this, all right? This is, what, this is what our society is based on right now, correct? Contracts. A legal arrangement made between people. It's based on mistrust of each other. In other words, if you trusted each other, you don't need a contract. But because both parties aren't quite sure and have been abused probably in the past, you sign this. And your trust isn't in the other person. Your trust is in the contract. Do you see that? I trust the legal consequences if they don't fulfill the contract. I don't trust them. I don't trust car dealerships. I trust this. Correct? Here, uncertainty and ambiguity are bad things. And that is why every, the fine print, baby, right? The fine print. There are no loopholes, right? They've all been closed. And then lastly, when you turn this in a Christian context, to be saved means your part of the contract is to believe the right things with enough certainty, And God's part of the contract is then to forgive you, give you your ticket to heaven, give you Jesus's righteousness where he takes your sin. So you do this cosmic swap and you just try to live a good life between now and heaven. Okay. That's contract. That's different from getting married, right? The language is different. So these are my wedding vows to my wife. 
In front of our Lord Jesus Christ and these gathered here, I make this covenant to you and to God. I take you to be my wife, my lover. Boom! My best friend, my companion. I wanted to put that one first, but I felt like I needed to... I, sorry. Uh, I wrote this when I was 29 in the long wilderness of celibacy. Now, I promise to love you and no other. Promise to never leave or abandon you. I promise to faithfully honor you and cherish you from this day forward in the sunshine and the rain, on the mountaintops and the valleys, through laughter and tears. I love you, Justine Renee. I give myself fully to you to death to his part. Now, the language is completely different, correct? Think about, it's a pledge of trust that involves the people themselves. This just involves my money. This involves my whole being, correct? This is based on mistrust. This is based on trust, right? There's something about you. There's no room for ambiguity here. This is all ambiguity here, correct? Can I control how she's going to be in 10 years? Can I control whether or not she'll get sick or, or whether or not she'll get hefty? I mean, I'm just saying, I'm worried about that, you know, for her. <laughs> right? Or she'll lose her hair. I mean, come on. <laughs> right? I mean, think what she said yes to versus what she got. Come on. The woman... She gets a heavier crown than Rubens. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> Amen. See, the whole thing is built around commitment, even in the face of uncertainty, because your trust isn't in a formula or a contract, but in a person. You see the difference? So when you enter into a covenant with God, you're not trusting what you know or how you live or what you've done, you're actually trusting in him. And what you're pledging isn't your religious deeds or your good life. You're pledging your real self in response. So when people ask questions like, hey, what do you have to believe to be saved? I always say, well, what do you have to believe to be married? Right? Did I know some stuff about my wife? Of course. Have I learned much since then? Yep. So do you have to believe in the Trinity and the Incarnation and all this huge doctrinal stuff to open yourself up and to pledge yourself to Jesus of Nazareth? Of course not. That stuff may come later from within the covenant. But at the same time, there does come a point where you have to know enough to trust. Or the other question, well, what are the habits and practices? Well, what makes a good marriage? Right? It has very little to do with reading my vows over and over again. It has everything to do with fulfilling them and leaning into them. So when people just say, okay, I want to grow my relationship with God, and all I do is read the book. Hallelujah, read the book. But it's not until you do the book that it begins to become concrete. Make sense? Man, we're so late. Do you see what? I have to work so much harder when you do this. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We got to transition. We don't have to, but we're going to. 
We're going to transition into the Lord's Supper. What in the marriage metaphor is that? What is that in the marriage metaphor? It's the renewal of our vows. Have you ever been to one of those? I've been to, I've been to ceremonies where a couple is married. One of them has, uh, is inappropriate with another or whatever. They fight through that. They renew their vows. And you go, that's the picture. That's the picture. We're not, we're not all faithful to King Jesus. Okay. All right. Hallelujah. Our fidelity to him isn't at issue. It's his character and the magnificence of his sacrifice that's at issue. And so this is vow renewal. This is me receiving him again and me pledging myself to him again. And guess what? We're going to need to do it next week and the week after that and the week after that. Right? Because this doesn't save us. No more than wearing a wedding ring makes you married. Or reading vows every now and again makes you married. No, what makes you married is the commitment in real life of your real self to another real person. Well, that's what this is. So, we're going to do that. For those of you that want to practice generosity, uh, we have participation boxes around the room. For those of you that uh, we could pray for, and we need, we just... Oh, we have so many great people who just are dying to pray for people. And so if there's anything we can do, please, 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 we'd love to. So they'll be around the communion stations. Gluten-free is there. And anything else? We're going to sing some more? Okay. Sound good? Was this all right? So the Q's and the A's okay? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, well, thank you. I was just curious because I've never done this. And I'm like, yeah, how's this? All right. All right. I'm sweating. So it must be good. <laughs> Someone once said, Mike, sweat is proof of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I said, then I spend my whole life being anointed. It's fantastic. <laughs> All right, so Lord, we pledge ourselves again to you. We, whatever faith we're trucking up here, Lord, we know that you receive it. And so um, we open ourselves to you. We come to your table. We don't come on our own merits. We don't come out of our own great religious performance. We come as people who are hungry and thirsty, who pledge yet again to try to be your people in the world in response to your magnificent grace, to walk in a manner worthy of that grace. And God, we receive you afresh to be reminded that you've done the work and we just get to say thank you. So we bless you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Steve, what's that called? It's a pedal steel. A pedal steel? We just had a pedal steel solo right there for just a little bit. It's like, yeah. All right, go ahead and stand up, brothers and sisters. Well, you did it. Survived another weekend. Uh, the rest of the day is yours. Um, and uh, I just want to pray over us a little differently. We, we have this kind of benediction that we do, but I want to pray for us this week. Because it's going to be an, a very interesting week in the life of our culture. And, um, and I, I really do, uh, this is to me more than anybody else, uh, to be, like to me, peacemaker is the word that just keeps jumping out. Now, how do we bring peace when there's so much division? And so um, I want to pray towards that. Um, please stick around, say hello to some folks if you'd like. And otherwise, 
It is such an honor to share the Lord's table with you. It is, I just sit and I watch and it's hard to not chirp towards the big sinners and just say they need big pieces of bread. So there are a couple of people I just knew, like this crew right here, right there, right there, that whole, it's like, man, you may, we, you may want to dunk them in the, in the, in the juice. They, anyway, again, spiritual moment in the dork. It just can't help it. So Lord Jesus, May we fix our eyes upon you. May we be people of peace in a culture of fear. May we be people who carry the message of reconciliation, that God is no longer holding our sins against us, and that in Christ, he's in the process of putting things back to the way he intended. May we be people who offer a different way of thinking about these things, And God, thank you that we live in a country where our vote matters and our opinion gets voiced. But Lord, we never want to confuse that with the beauty of your kingdom. And so um, help us, God, to exercise our citizenship in a way that makes the beauty of the Lord Jesus manifest. So we love you and we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Christ. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Thank you. Say hello to somebody. I'm going to try to beat you out. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.